what we do here is go back, 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 back. back. Hello and welcome to Unfiltered Tips, a podcast where myself, Kath, and my friend Rachel share on the struggles and successes of PhD life in the UK. Each episode will bring you updates from our lives in the lab, as well as discussing a topic relevant to PhD life in more depth. And this week is the first of three episodes we're planning on doing in diversity in research. And today we're going to take a look at what it's like to be a woman in science, but we also plan to dedicate whole episodes to both race and disabilities as well. Um, but first, let's just find out how things are going. So Rachel, last time when we recorded, you were yet to submit your PhD lit review. Um, how's that going? Has, has it gone in? It has, um, yeah, and the project proposal as well. So uh, yeah, that's, it's gone okay. Yeah, I'm sort of <laughs> relieved, <laughs> mainly relieved to have it in. Um, yeah. That's very exciting. I don't know, yeah, who, it's one of those things like you have to you have to get it done and um mm-hmm. uh yeah it was just it was a good practice of my multitasking ability to kind of yeah try and be in the lab at the same time as doing it so um but we got there we got there in the end um, that's very exciting do you feel um, relieved or like still feel weirdly stressed, even though it's gone, gone in? Or how are you feeling? Mainly just relieved, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mainly just relieved for now. Um, when do you hear back about it? Uh, like, well, I kind of got lots of feedback throughout as well. So okay. we have a meeting, um, but like, yeah it I think it will be what I expect to hear from like the feedback that I've already had um yeah so yeah that's fair enough that's fine that's a bit of yeah. relief that it's already kind of you will kind of know what to go in with I think because different people read mine than like the people that have been giving me feedback so oh really yeah the feedback was interesting yeah because like extra supervisors read it I don't know the supervisors that like are technically my supervisors but not really oh you, really you have to have because you have to have at least two supervisors at the University of Manchester <laughs> So I do yeah, have yeah. another supervisor. Not that I've really ever had a conversation with him. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice of him to comment on your lit review either way. <laughs> yeah, it was nice. <laughs> so you're back more in the lab now. Um, uh, yeah, but weirdly, it's quite just slow at the moment just because I'm just collecting tissues and stuff. So I feel like though you need to really cherish the slow moments because it's like... I don't know, I feel like science is at 110% or like 20% and there's no in between, like you're just at the two extremes. (laughs) Yeah, it's just one of those moments where you're kind of like, oh, I should be doing more, like you feel like, why aren't I, like, yeah, so it's just kind of, like I'm I'm kind of, like it's nice, I'm not particularly like rushing around, but Mm -hmm. it's also like, yeah. Oh, I feel like I should be, and then also I feel like I have a tendency really to get distracted and sort of in these slow times I just sort of wander around like and I don't actually focus on things that need to be focused on for the times when I am having a lot to do um but yeah I definitely felt like that because after Easter I took a big of like a bit of a break over Easter and then after Easter I had to get everything like all my cell lines back alive again and that takes like you need to have them growing for a couple of weeks before you can really do anything with them as so I felt like I wasn't really doing anything for two and a half weeks or so I was just waiting for cells to grow <laughs> like um yeah this week that I've just done is like been hellish so just like so, so yeah. talk us through like mm-hmm. your week then so you had a you had a massive day on Tuesday right if you follow me on Twitter at Fuzzy Felt because mm-hmm. I was an immature child when I set up my Twitter <laughs> <laughs> I keep thinking I should change it. You know, you can you can change that if you want. I know, but I don't want to because it feels like a relic and I need to keep it. It's also my screen name for almost everything. Um, so, um, if you don't follow me on Twitter, go follow me on Twitter because I live tweeted my uh, site off. <laughs> my size off cell prep day look at that. I mean this is a great plug right here <laughs> so yeah on Tuesday I did the first of my like stimulation size off experiments um 
which was actually not as stressful as I thought it was going to be. Um, well, that's nice. <laughs> yeah, I like, I, it was a really long day. I'd like, I had to get in, at, I think I got into the lab at half six in the morning, um, set myself starving at 7am um, for five hour starvation. Um, and then kind of had two breakfasts because two breakfasts was pertinent. Well, also, because I realised once I got going at midday, which is when I stimulated myself, I wasn't going to be free again until like maybe three or four in the afternoon. So <laughs> I feel like double breakfast mm. was called for. Um, but it was fine. Like I actually, because I've done the process so many times, the only thing that was different was getting through the stimulation, starvation, like starvation, stimulation and fixation. And once I got through that, it was kind of a way with the horses because I'd like done it so many times, like from that point that I kind of knew what I was doing. So the really, the only like stressful bit, and it felt a bit like I was taking like an ISA exam, you know, when you had to do those practicals, when you did A-level and you had to do the practical kind of in complete silence and it was a bit awkward. Mm -hmm. um, it was basically like that. I had like a clock in front of me and I had written down all the times when I had to do things and add things to different dishes. And I was just in silence, like adding things to dishes every single minute. And it was like, <laughs> just worrying. Concentration, like, stations. Concentrating, focused. Yeah, I put my phone on focus mode so no one could like distract me. And then... Oh, to be honest, Kath, it probably would have been me distracting you, wouldn't it? Like, <laughs> like how's it going? Let me know. <laughs> it would have, like, literally, it would have been. Are you having a breakdown yet? <laughs> like, I'm now that you've messaged me, um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay. so I put my I put my phone on focus wave so like no one would distract me and then once I was done it was so funny um one of my colleagues in the lab like I'd like got everything into PBS and I was like great we can just relax for a moment and my colleague was like I'm just so jealous of how that went like if that was me I would have just been flapping the entire time because <laughs> I was just like very calm very methodical I like prepped my bench I had like little post-it notes under each of my dishes so I knew what was what and like I know you can write on the bottom of the dish but like it was just easier to have the post-it notes my backwards writing is not very good <laughs> mm. but yeah and then we ran the sample on the Helios on Wednesday um and then I was planning to look at that data on Friday, but um, on Friday we had an entire like server situation where the servers were down the whole day. So no data for Kath. I haven't looked at the data. So I can tell you next time we record how it looks. And by then I would have done another one because I'm doing a repeat of this experiment this week. Um, so, but I'm, I'm missing a few antibodies. So don't tell anyone, but I'm going to, replace uh ecadherin with epcam because um we ran out of ecadherin and it hasn't arrived yet so so you're going to replace it next week with, with i think you've epcam which is another okay. surface marker that you, like i'm planning on using epcam in my panel anyway so mm -hmm. why not change it out like the main role of doing this experiment again is just because we're using a slightly different injector with the helios so those injectors man well shall see yeah but that's kind of how my week's gone so like the actual experiment itself went okay I have no idea what the data looks like though so it's kind of like Schrodinger at the moment yeah. like it could be terrible but I don't know that yet <laughs> once it's all debarcoded it's all gonna be well, I debarcoded out. it I just can't get the debarcoded oh, you already like, have it. Yeah. yeah all that data saved on the servers because that's the secure and safe way to do it so I spent all of Thursday afternoon I think Maybe, yeah, Thursday afternoon. I spent all of it on the cryostat. And um, it was just a bit like, like I actually really like the cryostat. Like it's very mindful because you have to concentrate. What does it do? Is it the, is that the one that cuts the slices of tissue? Yeah, but very yeah. cold. Um, so it cuts frozen sections. But like, <laughs> basically, I think I, I was cutting them too cold. And okay. also I wasn't using the one in the histology facility. I was using the one yeah. on our floor. Okay. because it's like I was just like oh I'll just jump on it yeah but then basically it doesn't have a heat sink uh next to it so normally after you finish sectioning um you put it on the heat sink so the 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 OCT that you've used to put your block on the mount is like melts first because it's like closer to the heat sink so then you can just take your block off and just you know 
put it back in a minus 80 or whatever but like obviously there was no heat sink there so I was like there like and then obviously if you just leave it in the open air it melts from the top down Uh, because the air's like the 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 mount the mount is much colder than the air so like it was just a bit of a disaster and then one of the blocks broke but it was thankfully it was like the naive naive one um and also like they're just really teary sections so I think I'm just gonna have to try and re- section them all because I, I do have some tissue left but like like it, it was good and I was cutting them successfully but they were just tearing yeah that sounds like something that will just come with a bit of experience as well right I think uh but I I, I get you though for wanting to use the one that's right there like my a postdoc in my lab calls it the path of least resistance where it's like just use the piece of kit that's closest <laughs> yeah it just take will take a while to set up again yeah to okay, get yeah everything going so that um, is kind of frustrating yeah but anyway apart from that uh all good yeah yeah I'm like slowly but sure that I keep pushing back this one experiment that I don't really want to do because I'm a bit anxious about it (laughs) so I keep like coming up with reasons why I don't have to do it (laughs) why are you anxious about it Oh, I've just like, it's a bunch of techniques I've not really done before um and I'm not entirely sure it's the right way to do something but I don't know there is no right way to do something so like the way I do it is going to be fine but it's basically just validating the starvation in the organoids and it just is going to be a headache to do um but it's fine I've pushed it back like by a week and a half um and I'm just going to see if a postdoc can help me out with it um we've got many in our lab so I'm sure one of them will be able to help <laughs> yeah nice yeah so we'll see we'll see I think I just need to stop being like a complete scaredy cat and actually just do it <laughs> it's that classic thing of mine where I'm like afraid because I don't because I've never done something and I can't visualize what it's going to be like I get really afraid to try it um, yeah I mean I'm experiencing that with the whole uh, metal conjugation situation so <laughs> um yeah but we'll see how it goes it should be fun mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I think like, that's the whole reason that like my cytop experiment wasn't scary was because I like knew what I was doing and I could picture what I was gonna do. Um, mm. So just need to get over the first time you do something. Doesn't have to be scary. Like it really doesn't. And if it goes wrong, it's not a very expensive experiment, so I can just do it again. Like, mm. yeah. yeah it's kind of like the freedom to the freedom to like do things badly the first time I don't know I feel like you can't expect yourself to necessarily just do everything perfectly the first time yeah you have to be able to give yourself permission that like it's okay if it goes wrong yeah so I guess uh, today, like the purpose of today's episode is to think a bit more about just kind of women in science and uh, where, like, and sort of gender gender equality in science uh, as a whole. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess the, the first when we were trying to like think about this, we were, okay, so what's the uh, what's what's the main problem? And yeah, mainly there's there's a there's a leaky pipeline, um, and there's a distinct lack of kind of uh, women at senior levels in mm-hmm. in science in in senior positions in academia and uh yeah not only that but um like women in these uh, senior positions quite frequently they might be getting paid less uh and also they might receive uh less uh funding than uh men at similar stages in their career um for a variety of reasons which yeah mm-hmm. i guess we'll we'll talk more about yeah yeah, so I think we wanted to start with uh, women because we are both women in science. Um, so we felt most comfortable <laughs> talking about this. But we can at least draw on some of our own experience, whereas when we uh, discuss race and disabilities, that we're less drawing on our own experience. So um, we thought we'd start with this. So the leaky pipeline, I think that's, yeah, I think it's, it's I think I can name the number of female lecturers that I had in my undergraduate degree or maybe like within 10 like less than 10 I would say um oh um yeah it's just I don't know there's such a dropout of women in that senior senior positions like the further up you get the less women there are and that's like not unique to science but like I don't think women are less talented at science so clearly something is like 
pushing them out of the field. Um, for sure. Um, for me, like when I was in the reading, like, one of the things that really struck me was the structures around like maternity pay and family leave. Um, mm. And it's something I think about a lot because I know I want to have a family. And it just like, from the outside, as a PhD student looking up the pathway, you're kind of just like, well, this is completely incompatible with having a family. And there's actually quite a lot of evidence to support that. Like um, one of the articles I read showed that like both men and women drop out of the academic workforce after having their first child. Um, men at 23% and women at 43%. So obviously there's double the amount of women kind of dropping out of the workforce after yeah, having well. their first child. But clearly men are dropping out too. So I think the fact that the journey is compatible with family life, but there's still a bias towards women taking that like major caregiving role. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I agree with uh, a lot of what, what you said. Um, yeah, I mean, I also feel the same way. Like I definitely want to have uh, a family when I'm, uh, you know, when I'm a bit older as well. And yeah yeah I like it's it's a real it's a really difficult one I think perhaps I've been a bit more like I've I've actually I think perhaps I've I've had the I've been fortunate enough to have actually a fair few female mm. lecturers and stuff mm. and also you know uh, a female group leader in yeah. my masters as well um who to be fair is like doing super well and I, I think it made it made me realize like thinking back on on that time like how much um like seeing like just the importance of seeing someone in a position mm-hmm. that makes you realize that like oh maybe some maybe like maybe that is somehow possible you know um yeah but yeah it doesn't take away from the fact that undeniably there's a greater dropout of women after having a child and yeah it just reflects the the fact that um the fact that women are still uh, kind of, I guess, the major caregivers in, in lots of families, um, perhaps more could be more could be done about that. I think to cater for that in terms of job applications and stuff. Well, definitely, and then also I think there's there's real cases for it. Like in I think it's either Denmark or Sweden. Like they have mandatory equal, like both men and women get a year. And they have to take that, men have to take that year, like they can't opt out of it. And that actually kind of sets families up for a more balanced uh, life for that entire that entire child's life. So there are things that could be done. I think like that, I think that kind of brings in the funding side of family leave, which is interesting um, when I looked into it. Um, like not all uh, funders in the UK actually provide maternity cover um on grants like actually two major charities in the uk CRUK and the british heart foundation don't cover the cost of maternity leave um which is kind of Mm. mad and then funders if they do cover the cost of maternity leave it's usually like a top up at the end of your original grant period so it's like if you go on maternity leave your grant gets paused and then so you're on maternity leave for nine months after that nine months, you get nine months adding on to the end of your grant with that money. But like for me, like obviously that's fine. Like in my case, I do a lot of in vivo, in vitro experiments. So that's fine. You just freeze everything down. But like, what if you've got like a mouse study or a clinical trial or like, like, and then yeah. they're causing your grant. Like and you have to pay to keep those, like, those mouse lines running or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Like what, what choice do women have other than to like hand off their research to somebody else? I don't know I think there is like that kind of brings in that funding issue alongside having a family and that kind of like brings us the idea that you mentioned kind of in actual introduction about women getting less money um yeah um yeah like there's there have been sort of yeah papers on this as well just also saying that perhaps like women don't negotiate enough either Mm -hmm. like that they when there's if there's an option to negotiate and like yeah there's uh and so I guess you know if women sort of knew what what to negotiate for and like mm-hmm. also how much to expect or what what where there is wiggle room yeah. to kind of talk about these things um you know and I don't know I I personally haven't heard like that many people speak about it um no. apart from like the papers that I've read but 
yeah I don't like day-to-day stuff I haven't really yeah I haven't really heard that being spoken about I think with the negotiation thing it's like a way especially with the fact that there are just this women at senior positions like I feel like women are more than likely going to have to be negotiating with a man that's in control of the funding I don't know if that's (laughs) gonna like (laughs) if that's gonna be a problem but like I don't know I think that lack of confidence and unwillingness to negotiate for yourself is definitely something that is mirrored across industries like like that's kind of one of the contributing factors to a pay gap is that like men women ask for promotions and women don't um and I don't know if that is also to do with the fact that there are just less women in the top of the field to build those relationships with and kind of know where you're stacking up and I don't know I would feel really awkward myself asking for like extra things or promotion like I can't imagine yeah. ever doing that and yeah it's yeah. something that kind of has to be done um it goes to show that like it's why you need kind of like diverse panels mm. in terms of like yeah. you need you need diverse panels in mate in like the people who kind of decide who to give funding get whose applications get funded anyway um yeah exactly but like um yeah and also, I, I feel like you were you go on to kind of like sort of mentorship there in a way, like uh, just kind of maybe briefly kind of touch on that. I don't. What do you think? Yeah. About, what do you think about that? I think it's so important. Like so many jobs you get in academia are because you know someone that knows someone, um, and it's I think it's easier to build a rapport and a network with people that are like you. So if there's less people that are like you around or it's I don't know I feel like always comfortable more comfortable going up and talking to a woman I don't know than talking to a man I don't know at conference (laughs) like that's maybe just me being unsure of myself but um and like I know this problem is like tenfold when it comes to minorities but I think it is an issue and there was that do you remember the really horrific Nature Comms paper that came out earlier oh, this year? Oh gosh, yeah. When, when like, yeah, Twitter just like kicked <laughs> <It> off. <imploded. laughs> but like that, I think is the crux of the problem, right? They, that paper kind of attributed female PIs being worse mentors, which is categorically not true because it's. I like, how do you measure? I just think, yeah. How do you measure mentorship? Like the real mentorship? Like how do you measure that in all? like in all the phone calls and all the like you know emails or whatever just that are like just random conversations like I don't know yeah but the implication of that paper was that if you had a female PI as your mentor you weren't going to succeed as much and like while they did a completely atrocious job of trying to explain why that was I think actually they didn't really touch on the fact that like female PIs themselves have smaller networks and Mm. so like it's really important for women to mentor each other but then also like we need impetus and input from people that have broader networks and know more people and like that has to come from like recognizing that there's a problem from like the male side of it um which I think is really interesting like there's um a mentorship program within CRUK that is kind of designed for it's not for PhD students, it's literally for uh, postdocs and stuff. And it's people that are on that junior PI track and it pairs them with other successful women, but like not within academia, within like the business field mm. um, to kind of train them on all the business side of things, of PI-ness that you need. Like you need to be good with finance and you need to be, you need to manage your budget, you need to manage people. And like, I think that's a really, really cool program. And there needs to be more like that because we need to learn these skills somewhere and yeah I think (laughs) those opportunities can be few and far between like I do kind of wish that there was something at the PhD level that was a bit more formal yeah I I am I actually really hope I really wish that there was something like that as well um Mm -hmm. that was more formal um at the PhD level yeah um for sure again I think actually the university like Manchester Uni I do also I think have like a staff yeah. mentoring program but again like as a PhD student we don't mm-hmm. qualify that because technically yeah. we're like <laughs> students they like they pretend to give us respect by calling us postgraduate researchers <laughs> but then exclude us from anything that's like this is only for the staff actually now you're we're basically students when it's convenient for the university to deem us students um 
um, <laughs> staff and it's convenient for them to think of us as staff, you know? Mm. Yeah, I do agree. Like, I just wish that there was something more formal um, from us. Like, I can seek out my own mentors. Have you thought about doing that? Like, I'm genuinely, like, yeah. have you thought about, about doing that and genuinely, like, just asking, mm-hmm. like, quite directly, like... Yeah, so I'm very keen for my, we have advisors that are like non-academic people that we know that like are supposed to like help us with pastoral stuff. But my advisor is great. Like she's a different PI in the Institute, but like Klaus chose her because like, I I mean, I assume because she's a woman, but also because (laughs) she like has a different (laughs) viewpoint on things. She's a clinic, she's a clinician as well as like a PI and she's just fantastic and very inspiring um so I'm really hoping that like I can foster a bit of a stronger relationship with her um and then just within my own lab like I don't know I feel like I'm building good rapport with some of the postdocs just like having good postdoc mentor is so underrated but so important like I don't know like and yeah the postdoc in my lab is just great um and we yeah, she's really, really fostered that for me. So I definitely want to recall being like that. It also talking about mentorship, I've actually applied to be a mentor to some year 12s in like underprivileged and underrepresented groups in Manchester over the summer. Nice. So I'm kind of trying to. What's like, that through? Um, into science. Nice. So we'll find out in may late may i think if we've got paired but um it'll be interesting because I, I was just thinking about when we were doing all this research into women in science and stuff i was like actually this is so important and like i am i am now a woman in science <laughs> like i'm like i it's official <laughs> i'm in a position where i could also potentially mentor someone else like i think it has to be both ways like both seeking mentorship and offering it um yeah oh for sure yeah I think I wanted to talk like a little bit more about the funding gap because it is interesting to me because there's a a number of articles that seem to kind of be like there isn't a funding gap or there is a funding gap and like I mean when they're written by the funders they tend to say that there isn't a funding gap when they're written by the academics (laughs) yeah (laughs) maybe I'm being too cynical this <laughs> there was an article that like I think it was part of it was in nature wasn't it that was it was like a nature letters or something about um like CLUK taking a look at like who was successful for grants and stuff um mm. based on both gender and ethnicity but I guess just homing in on the gender stuff they kind of I suggested that gender were more like women were just as successful as men in getting grants and like that's great we love it that that's kind of got to the point and they, they kind of pointed to the fact the reason that it improved so much was because more women were on the grant awarding panels. Um, so that kind of goes back to our point about representation and that kind of ties into another article I was reading about the importance of putting junior members of staff on grant awarding panels. So like junior PIs or senior postdocs and like one of the byproducts of like papers and grant awarding funds actually doing that is that they get more diversity because junior staff are more diverse so <laughs> I yeah. think it's kind of a win-win there like put junior people on the panel you're you're inbuilt diversity then and then also like that will help other junior researchers get funding um yeah and if you like have um if you have like a diverse you know diverse application is diverse a diverse intake like give like funding to a diverse range of people you're you know that's how you keep mm-hmm. talent isn't it you know yeah yeah exactly um but I think the kind of bit behind like our women are just as successful or maybe more successful at getting grants was that the grants women are getting are smaller mm-hmm. and there's mm-hmm. a number of papers that kind of show and point at that um and I think it can't be understated because like just from hearing off the scuff stories of like other female PIs in our institute like getting momentum right at the start of your career is difficult and really really important um to get some momentum yeah to like actually if you want if your lab wants to keep going you need 
a decent amount of funding um, to kind of build momentum. Um, and so like if women are starting off with less money and then winning less grants, like after that, like I think in the, within the first five years, like men are kind of receiving more money, uh, both at their initial grant and any follow-up grants that they're getting. Um, and so that can make it quite difficult for women and they're like who are heading up labs to um and they get started and then also if you think about the fact that the age of starting your lab you're usually kind of you know in your mid 30s I think like as women as well like I don't know I'd be like struggling because I'd have a young family as well and it's like I imagine that trying to put juggle all of those things would be very difficult I like I like look up the pipeline and I'm just like I just don't want to be that stressed like yeah I mean it does it sounds like you have to it kind of seems like you have to be a bit of a like it feels like you have to be superwoman to be honest yeah yeah um yeah I just I don't know I just like I find it so intimidating to the point where I'm just like well what's the point in even doing a postdoc when I know I like wouldn't ever be able to manage running my own lab so might as well just quit while I'm ahead and go do something with more reasonable hours <laughs> with a, a nice nine to five and I'm yeah. like I'm yeah. like the exact the exact thing like I'm dropping out of the pipeline I know a lot of PhD students drop out like like they're, they're, like PhDs versus the number of postdoc positions there are on the UK like app is just yeah. winding and winding winding anyway but um I like can see the appeal of not continuing down this path um, yeah also just like the uncertainty as well mm -hmm. actually like so uh, interestingly like I know someone who kind of made the point kind of what you're saying now like actually a PhD is kind of secure like you're secure for four yeah. years yeah and honestly that's the most secure you'll ever be like for, for a considerable amount of time I don't know sort of like, I mean, you know, postdoc positions are often not very long, no. uh, you know, and even, I guess, establishing a research group sounds super stressful. Like, um, mm. And in the UK, there isn't really like a tenure track like there is in the US. Like, it's not like when you're at a university for a certain amount of time, you can't really be dissolved. I mean, the universities don't often fire people, but there isn't necessarily that job security that you like until you're way into your kind of like mid forties, I would say. Mm. Yeah, yeah I get what you mean. And then also I was looking at like in academia now, like the vast majority of people move like between post, like physically move where they're living, like between countries or between like between your PhD and your postdoc or between different postdocs and then starting like a, a lab and like, actually like uprooting your entire family every three years it's not sustainable it's not sustainable it's not really appealing like at least from what I understand affects both men and women like mm. and it can make it can really want people not to participate in the field but yeah I don't know like, I think there is a lot more societal guilt placed on women if they did that to their families versus if men did that to their families but yeah potentially that's a really interesting point um yeah I think mean, it just it it seems yeah I guess it's coming back to the fact that yeah academia and family life mm -hmm. are they compatible um and yeah I think the only the only way <laughs> the only things that make me think that perhaps it might mm -hmm. be are that I've sort of seen people who who do have both but are they very I don't know I haven't I've sort of never asked enough specific questions like of, of these people um because mm -hmm. I was like too scared to to be like how do you do it <laughs> like what like but yeah I don't know I'd be genuinely super interested to find out but I mean you know I'm like a little baby scientist at the moment aren't I like, yeah what do I, what do I already know so <laughs> I mean I have talked about it when we've had people come in like when we have external speakers you can have lunch with them afterwards mm. and so I often try and do that with any of the female speakers that come in um, really and if Just they do asking. yeah and we ask them about the family and they're like <laughs> How'd you do it? <laughs> We're always just like, well, you, often they bring it up because we'll say like, oh, what's been the biggest challenge about being a woman in science? And they almost all okay, say family. Well. 
Um, okay. And like, I mean, I remember one specific conversation where she was like, you've got to time your children well. You need to have them in between jobs because you can't have one whilst you're in a job. And like, <laughs> it was very like, mm. I mean, obviously that's just her opinion, but like, I think, because I think she'd had like two kids, one between two postdocs and then one when she was like in a postdoc. And it was a bit of a nightmare when she was in a postdoc. And I remember with when I was at Fred Hutch, because this is um, in the US, like as a, an employer, they don't provide maternity pay. And that's like a problem generally in the US, like maternity pay isn't required. But like when I was there, like there were a number of women that like were in the lab, like up until the week before they gave birth. And it's like, it's just a bit mad. Like, it stresses me out even thinking about it so yeah I think it is a case of like if you can see it you can be it so maybe if we can solve some of these structural issues and more women feel like they can have families and more people would see women with families and then less women would be afraid and like leave ahead of when they had a family or after yeah. they've had a kid um, yeah yeah so I mean we've been a bit Debbie Downers we should talk about some of the stuff that is actually in place, yeah, because it's not, it isn't all doom and gloom. There are, um, there are, there, yeah, there are, there are good initiatives uh, in place. Yeah, in the UK, I don't know if they're... that counts about this issue, especially yeah, in the UK. Uh, I guess we, because we are in the UK, this is kind of uh, our experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, so why don't you talk a little bit about Athena Swan? Um, what it is. <laughs> the Athena Swan Charter is is amazing. Um, I think, uh, yeah, it, it's basically, uh, actually, it's actually globe-wide and it's used to um, basically transform, uh, it's basically the goal is to transform gender equality uh, within our education and research. And uh, as institutions and kind of, uh, departments you can apply for Athena Swan awards which are basically uh awarded um gold silver bronze I think yeah gold (laughs) gold silver bronze depending on like uh sort of the steps you've taken Mm -hmm. if I'm right in thinking the steps you've taken to address address like uh gender inequality issues within those within those departments um I don't know if you've had anything more to add to that. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just going to give an example of um, uh, where I am. One of the kind of Athena Swan initiatives that we have is about scheduling of talks. So we don't have any talks before 10 in the morning and we don't have any talks mm-hmm. after three in the afternoon um, so that people can go get their kids and they won't be missing out on seminars um, at work. Yeah. So, like, which I think is great. Um, I mean, a lot of the PhD students uh, feel that it's a bit frustrating because it means that talks are like in the middle of the day when you want to be doing research. Like, because we like have to go to the talks, like they're mandatory, but then also like a talk at, you know, 10 in the morning is kind of in the way of your morning. Um, so like, I think it's a good idea in principle, but sometimes it like doesn't really work in practice um so I don't know like have you had any kind of interactions with principals or like things put in place um so I mean where I did my master's they actually have like a gold award um, oh wow so they're they're doing super well there um actually it's interesting you mentioned talk so we we had we did have a talk at 4 p.m on a Monday mm-hmm. um but uh yeah I I, so I can't really uh, speak for that, but um, yeah, I think uh, that's like my experience of it hasn't been uh, like, I think it's, it was just kind of, I guess, cause I hadn't experienced anything differently mm. as of yet. I was kind of just yeah. like, I was just super fortunate, I think, because to have like, to basically be in a really good uh, department where mm a lot of people cared about this kind of thing and were really pushing it and really wanted to devote their time to to um change stuff and I like I remember um yeah sort of individual people like there would be like 
kind of recognition as well for people who had really like actually really made an impact in terms of the things they were doing as well um which I went to actually one time um so it's really like where you were was like fostering an environment that kind of specifically aims to be inclusive yeah yeah like I know there was a there was a there was actual childcare like very close like ne- nearly on site I think um so people could actually bring their kids to work yeah Fred Hutch has the same thing they have um Hutch kids which is like the on-site um daycare and then during the summer I think they have up to age 11 year olds can come and do basically like it's like free summer camp with science experiments for elementary school kids um during the summer holidays nice frameworks like the Athena Swan Charter are so helpful when you are thinking about where do you even start when you want to change a culture um Mm. and you can look at the guiding principles and be like oh okay this is a framework that we can aim towards Um, it is it is about changing the culture and I reckon it's like you know I guess there are three kinds of groups that you these talk at least you know like from from what I've learned and like some seminars I've been to and stuff they talk about these like three groups so you have the people that are all for changing the culture you've got the people who are like against changing the culture but it's like the middle people that you have to convince um the people who are like I don't know I guess a bit more ambivalent and stuff and are just kind of like yeah I don't know people that are kind of a bit more laissez-faire just like I'll just go where the current takes me <laughs> can be easy to become that person especially if you're like start like it's a really long and tired hard thing to try and change your culture in the workplace environment so yeah I think like it's easy it's, it's far easier to set a culture than it is to change one I think as more people and um, as more women get into more senior roles like I think we have to remember that the people that are currently in senior roles kind of work their way through the crunch point as I like to call it junior PI ship like in the late 80s early 90s and I think like how how hard it comes out can be to even still be a, like women in STEM now but like in the 80s and 90s like <laughs> I don't know yeah so like I feel like a lot maybe in 10-15 years time like we'll, we'll see so many more women in like senior positions setting the cultures because at the moment the women at the top like kind of had to play a man's game in a man's world and they kind of set similar cultures to what they've experienced like that I think they still can set those quite rigid quite tough cultures that don't necessarily allow everybody to flourish so Mm -hmm. I think maybe we'll see a changing of the guards a bit as people kind of I mean, a few steps ahead of us get into those more senior leadership positions. Yeah, it is super clear that like clearly maternity pay and stuff and on grants and stuff as well. It's clear that that is a super big, mm-hmm. a big issue. It feels like it almost feels like it would be a bit of a risk. It almost feels like you're taking a risk with having a family, right? Yeah, and like there are stories. I obviously like it's illegal to ask this in the UK, but in other countries it's not. And like I've heard stories of people being asked when they're interviewing for post positions if they're planning on having kids because, like, it can cause a big problem to your lab's funding stream if you're like, if your grants policy is to cut that funding, like the moment you take start taking maternity leave, like that could be an issue for a really small lab. I think it's one of those issues that I think. If you solve the maternity problem in terms of pay for men and women, so just family leave in general, yeah, and pay for experimental upkeep, which is the big chunk that's missing right now, I think that would yeah. do wonders to incentivize women to stay in science for longer. Because the thing we haven't kind of talked about this at all yet is the result of not having women in leadership positions in terms of what research gets done. Oh, yeah, I mean, exactly. <laughs> I mean, like, I, I think, like, I don't know if you've read it yet, but um, Invisible Women, the wonderful, wonderful book. Yes. I have. I have. It's a great book. It's a great book. Yeah, Caroline Criado Perez. Um, that just wonderful, wonderful book. 
I would, I would genuinely recommend. I would definitely recommend this book to anyone. I, I feel like it should be mandatory reading for anybody that's in research or engineering or like public design, urban design. But she talks a lot about like sex and segregated data and what research doesn't happen because women aren't there to say what about women. Yeah, or like this is actually an issue that maybe could be researched. <laughs> exactly, and say like topic choice in general I think like how much will that change if we can keep women in the pipeline um like yeah I I think the thing that immediately I think about is endometriosis um and how little we know about it and what causes it or I don't know I feel like there are so many questions just around the menstrual cycle that we just don't know (laughs) (laughs) maybe if there was like more women at the top we'd just like be able to know why or like so many mysteries of pregnancy that again we don't know much about and um like women's issues don't get researched if they're not there to drive that research or not on the funding boards bodies to choose what gets research or I really don't know that many labs that are actually doing sort of like reproductive research so yeah I think like that like that is the big kind of thing that we haven't yet mentioned really was like what what research will be able to happen when women can choose what's being funded? It kind of reminds me of a like you know Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and how she was like, "Oh, women belong in all the places where decisions are being made." And I was like, "You know what? It's, yeah, it's true. Like if if they're not where decisions are being made, then like you get these issues, right? <laughs> or stuff gets not stuff isn't picked up on that would be." Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think I just really hope that we're kind of moving towards a future where, like, we will just see that balance start to shift and mm. we'll get the opportunity to kind of dictate the pace of research and where research is going and who's being included in that research. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to dream big. Yeah, I think, I mean... I th- I don't think I think I I mean obviously I hope for for the same things too um for kind of a more yeah just like uh, yeah I don't for it to feel like less of a risk to 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 try and stay if you decide you want to stay yeah, obviously there are like tons and tons of resources beyond what we've talked about um yes lots and lots and we encourage you to do some reading and get engaged with this like if you're a woman it's kind of an imperative to get engaged with this but also if you are a man listening to this um you should also be you should also be reading this these things (laughs) and so it's really important that it's kind of a united front um and as we kind of said at the start um we're gonna do two more episodes kind of about this um looking at the effect of race um, and the effects of disabilities because both those topics are being deserved their own episodes um absolutely it's deep and <laughs> we're only really scratching the surface yeah I was gonna say that's my main feeling I have right now like I feel like we've spoken a lot and then I feel like I honestly feel like this could go on for ages <laughs> yeah yeah I, mean, I feel like there are entire podcasts just dedicated to this topic so go and find them <laughs> there are many books written about this topic as we mentioned uh invisible women is one of our favorites but there are plenty more um many papers as well yeah a huge number of papers and i mean we joked about the funding the funding companies like not saying there was a problem with their funding but they do they do mention it they are realistic and so like lots of funders like the UKRI group and CRUK like they publish their diversity and funding reports very regularly um ELC the ELC also do yeah so definitely keep a look at those because they're like ultimately they're the people that are deciding and dictating what gets researched um so I think like it's good to keep your finger on the pulse of what the funders are saying about who they're funding um, as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right. So with that, I think it's time to sign off. <laughs> Any yeah. final thoughts, Rachel? Much as, I, much as I wish we could actually, yeah, carry on. Um, yeah. Uh, hopefully, I don't know, I feel like hopefully 
there are hopefully like this will at least encourage some people to go away and do lots of reading of their own uh i feel like my main thing is that i need to read even more than i already have done yeah um, me too me too um but but yeah uh get engaged i feel like yeah yeah seek out uh women in stem groups where you're at like there are plenty every single university has one um there are always lots of women in stem events on around where you are like i've been to a couple before covid in pre-covid times we might we might be coming to the end of that maybe i know i went to a couple like science diversity events at the science museum here in manchester that were put on they were really great so do seek it out go and get engaged um with it it's just i think it's something that we all really need to be fighting towards and pushing for yeah i think so that is uh that is us for this week uh because we've witted on for, for quite a while Blamed, ramped, <laughs> whined um boned. Uh, all, all those all those words uh but yeah we hope you've enjoyed hearing us <laughs> whine moan have an utter um as usual um we've linked sources in the show notes and if you did like it uh share it with other people yeah please do please share this episode we want to grow our listenership because we want to interview people but um <laughs> we're not sure they'll say yes if people don't listen so please share this with your friends <laughs> okay um our social media will also be linked in the show notes so why not give us a follow on twitter um and if you have any comments or suggestions you can dm us there or you can always email us our email will also be in the show notes as well sound production and design is by josh cooper and we'll be back again in two weeks with another episode of unfiltered tips so thanks again for listening bye bye what we do here is go back 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 back